Hello, spectacular friends, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place in space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 46. Before we get into today's discussion, let's go over some quick housekeeping. First off, we're ACE approved, so if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two key words interspersed during the talk, and then take us over to our website, atypicalba.com, click the little basket, and there you can purchase CEUs. Also, take a little bit of time to cruise around the site to find additional resources, citations for each episode, and more information about our absolutely amazing guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with our upcoming talks and live events, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a pretty rad time to hang out, learn, and interact with our guests, and social media is a great way to get to know the podcast, so reach out and say hello. You can also rate and provide feedback on your favorite listening platform to help further our dissemination mission. Lastly, stick around after the talk to hear a preview clip from episode 47. And now today's wonderful knowledge. Overtime, pushing for a spot on the team, gotta make those billable hours, no pain, no gain, have to make the grade. These behaviors may ring too true for many, and they come with potentially fantastic reinforcers, but how costly are they in the long run? It's not uncommon that these behaviors can signal burnout is on the horizon, and that's okay, it's understandable. Behavior is a product of the environment, multiple contingencies and competing reinforcement, and burnout can be analyzed and addressed through these multiple behavior analytic lenses. So in this live talk, we're meeting with Dr. Julie Sloviak, PhD, BCBAD, and founder of InJewel LLC, to talk about her behavior analytic exploration and how it's led her to investigate the burnout phenomenon that is pervasive across environments and people. So schedule some downtime, Grab your favorite comforting beverage and join us for episode 46. Feeling a little crispy or overcooked? Investigating Burnout with Julie Sloviak. It's going to be a good day because I'm here with Dr. Julie Sloviak and I, we, as I was just saying, had this awesome like preliminary brainstorm chat that we touched on a ton of topics um, and kind of piecemeal together what we think is like a good combination of them, but there's definitely a lot of room for discussion. So I'm excited. Um, so we're going to talk a combination of like translating between fields, um, which is always super fun because we, as we've learned, you know, we can talk in an echo chamber and it's, we're not being productive if we can't communicate with other people and other professionals. So, you know, she's been doing work on that and then getting into the discussion about, you know, the science of behavior analysis. If you've listened to some of our previous talks, um, that's something that we're really interested in looking at is, is kind of teasing apart the layers. And, you know, it's not just ABA, you know, it's really what is the science capable of doing? And we've seen it with animals and organizations and you know, this wide variety of, of settings and organisms and everything. So we're going to look at that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about, what I think a lot of people are interested in is burnout um, because life is hard and this job is not easy. Um, being a human is really hard. And so a lot of people, you know, there's competing contingencies and there's a lot of stressors in life. And sometimes variables and things happen that you were not expecting and it, you know, your energy gets depleted. So we're going to hit on a lot of stuff and I'm super excited. So like I said, feel free to utilize the chat, make comments. Um, we'll address them as we go through. And other than that, I'm going to stop talking. And Julie, if you could introduce yourself, welcome. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you, Kelly, for the invitation. Um, really glad to be here on a, what is a very foggy um, Friday in, in Duluth. So we have a, a change of different weather fronts. And when that happens, when you're next to the lake, you just end up with a day where it's just fog. I can't even see across the creek to see the neighbors on the other side of the neighborhood right now. So um, so that's what we're dealing with here. Um, not, not particularly um, hot either, which um, we're all kind of grateful for. We're ready for fall here. Um, so... 
just to give you a little bit of uh, background, I currently am an associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, I've been at UMD since 2008. Um, I came here directly after uh, finishing uh, my graduate um, degree at Western Michigan University. Um, I do have my bachelor's degree in both psychology and organizational communication, um, and that was University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Uh, and then I did go over to Western Michigan University, where I completed my master's degree in um, IO, Industrial Organizational Psychology, which now has been renamed as IO, Industrial Organizational Behavior Management, um, and then stayed to finish my um, PhD, PhD in Behavior Analysis. Wow, I cannot talk at the end of the week. Sorry about that. Um, so... And, and just to um, give you an idea of uh, those that I worked with, uh, my advisor for my master's thesis was um, Dr. Brad Heidema, who has a, a background in um, industrial organizational psychology. And then uh, my doctoral dissertation was advised by Dr. Alice Dickinson. And so um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I ended up at Western um, not knowing that I was going to, when I was an undergrad, not knowing that I was going to go into behavior analysis. Um, I was a junior and I took my psychology of learning class and it ended up being taught by a new faculty member um, by the name of Kevin Klatt, who um, probably a lot of people in the field know by now. Um, but Kevin had joined the faculty and he was teaching psych of learning. And when he found out that my interest was in industrial and organizational psychology, he mentioned to me that maybe I'd want to look into, um, I guess, the behavioral cousin of IO, uh, which is organizational behavior management um, in behavior analysis. And um, honestly, I fell in love with that class. We um, got to do a rat lab in that class. We taught our rat how to do really awesome things, shaping behavior. And I just, I got hooked and, um, and then found out that we had an emphasis. We had a series of classes in behavior analysis at, at Eau Claire. Um, he and uh, Greg Madden um, were at Eau Claire. And so um, I took all the courses that I could. I actually stayed an extra semester at Eau Claire so that I could take the experimental analysis of behavior class. Um, and continue working in uh, Dr. Madden's animal lab. So working with rats and pigeons, um, did some really fascinating uh, work on um, creating animal models of gambling behavior. Uh, and, um, and Dr. Madden had, you know, didn't have a background in OBM, but in order to help, I guess, boost my application for graduate school, once I decided I wanted to go more that, that route, uh, versus traditional IO, um, he helped supervise my first OBM project. Um, and so, uh, you know, I applied to Western and, and got in and, and that's kind of um, how I got there. But I really was going to go the traditional industrial organizational psychology route, uh, which makes it kind of interesting that now I currently um, am part of the graduate faculty in our department um, and teach courses in the graduate IO psychology track with my behavior analytic background. Um, so that's, that's like a little bit of the background information. I love it. I think it's fun when people, um, you know, I wasn't intending to do this. Or in some cases, we've heard stories of like, I was actively trying to run away from this and explore other areas because I was always surrounded by education or academia. And it's like, I want to do something different. And then there's that one class or that one client or that one instance. And you're like, ooh, but I'm hooked again. Mm. Mm hmm so yep. um, real quick, I, I like calling them cousins. I think that's fun. So that's a, that's a good descriptor in my brain. So can you actually explain um, what IO psych 
or yeah, IO behavior management is, um, and maybe a little bit of its background, because in all honesty, I only became aware of it um, within probably the last, you know, 10-ish years, and and even then, I had only heard of it at this one university. And so when mm-hmm. you and I were talking, I'm like, this is fascinating. Like, how am I, you know, just now hearing about this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's what's interesting about um, IO psychology is within the larger field of psychology, IO psych tends to be lesser well-known, just like behavior analysis tends to be lesser well-known when you're in a traditional psychology department. Um, and so when you look at the definitions of both industrial organizational psych, which I'm just going to refer to as IO psych and um, an organizational behavior management or, or OBM, um, they're both talking about the application of, of principles of psychology to the workplace. The difference is IO is broad. It's the principles of psychology to the workplace. Um, and OBM is the principles of behavior analysis to organizational settings in the workplace, right? So we're getting very, very specific with OBM. And that's where you see it's that behavioral orientation um, is what sets it apart from from IO. So I talk about IO as being like the cognitive cousin and and OBM being the behavioral um, cousin. So they both um, tend to tackle many of the same workplace uh, issues related to both organizational um, productivity and um, effectiveness and efficiency. And their overall focus, their overarching focus in in both fields um, is really that relationship between the behavior of the members in the organization and performance. So you can see that they really are both trying to tackle the same issues, but they're going to come at it from a different perspective. So they differ really in their conceptual and their methodological approaches is where we see this primary distinction. Um, So in in IO psych, um, you know, they're really uh, focused on making sure that people are treated fairly, that jobs are interesting and satisfying, uh, helping people be more productive, increasing process um, efficiency. And um, in in IO, um, if you ever pick up an industrial organizational psych textbook, this is probably the thing that strikes me or struck me the most. Um, Because as an undergrad, we didn't have a class in IOSIC, but we had a, an awesome faculty member who said, we'll do an independent study. So anybody who's interested in it, we'll just, we'll read a textbook, we'll get together every week and we'll discuss. And that's how we would um, get our experience because the person, the faculty member who had taught IOSIC classes um, at UW-Eau Claire retired the year before I started there. Go figure, right? Um, and so when we were going through that textbook, and if you look at a modern textbook today, such as Michael um, Abmott's, he's, he's one of the well-known textbook um, authors, there are at least 10 different theories of motivation. There are, you know, eight to 10 leadership theories. Um, so there's no unifying theory that exists within the field of IO psychology. Um, now that's not a negative characteristic about the field. It's just a very notable difference when you think about behavior analysis and OBM, there's a single unifying theory about why people do what they do, right? Um, And so, you know, in in OBM, um, you know, we're looking at the identification of, the modification of different variables in the environment that are affecting human behavior in the workplace when we're talking about it specific to OBM. and, and even the areas of focus, you know, for practitioners in IO and OBM, there's a lot of overlap, but where you'll see probably the largest distinction is that you'll have more practitioners in IO who are focused on personnel selection and recruitment, because that's really where the field got its start. 
Um, and it dates back to, uh, I think it was World War II and um, the selection of, of army recruits um, is where um, a lot of the selection stuff came about to be. So doing personality um, selection tests to figure out who is going to be the best fit, um, looking at different um, individual attitudes versus, you know, observable behaviors, like they're, they're more focused that way. Um, but, you know, they do stuff related to training development, just like we do, performance appraisal um, and performance management. Um, they, they focus on the term organizational development, which is has some similarity to, um, you know, systems analysis in, in OBM. Um, but there are, but it's more broad. And again, there are multiple theories about organizational change and how to um, carry out change in organizations at, at a large scale. Um, there's, you know, a sub area that's focused on occupational health and safety. And, you know, in OBM, there are, are a number of pr practitioners who are doing stuff in behavioral based safety. So there really is a lot of overlap. And probably where I see the biggest again is that you'll see more IO folks in the personnel selection and recruitment um, types of, of positions. Um, and that's not to say that OBMers couldn't work in that area, um, but they're probably less inclined to because of the types of you know, selection testing and, and those types of things, looking at individual differences um, that are more, are, are those hypothetical construct type differences, right? Personality traits and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so that kind of, you know, talks about the, you know, the distinction um, in terms of theoretical um, and, but then also the overlap in terms of the areas of focus. Um, another primary difference um, between the two fields is related to research methodology and research strategy. So in IO psychology, um, the research tends to be more correlational, um, you know, using regression analyses, using other, um, you know, high level statistical analyses to make inferences. And they're really focused on testing theories. So because they have 10 plus theories of every single thing under the sun, um, they're using various statistical techniques in order to, to create hypotheses and test um, those hypotheses. And all of the hypotheses are theory driven. Um, and OBM research, similar to a lot of behavior analytic research, tends to be more experimental, um, applied in nature, and uh, focused on evaluating, you know, research-based, evidence-based interventions. Um, I think what's interesting, though, when you look at the IO psych research, um, you're going to see, and these are strengths that have been identified um, by uh, folks in our field even. So um, if, if anybody wants a, a good read, um, Alver Buckland, Alvero, Dickinson, Austin, and Jackson in 2008 published an article in JOBM called Industrial Organizational Psychology and Organizational Behavior Management. Um, and a few of the strengths that they noted, um, and even though it was back in 2008, it's still relevant today, uh, is the inclusion of cost-benefit analyses uh, when thinking about interventions that you're going to put into place, um, the variety and complexity of topics that are studied in IO, um, as well as uh, the increased prevalence of social validity data, which I think we're getting better at, um, but we're still lacking in, in OBM as compared to um, even other areas within the field of behavior analysis. Um, so, so those are some strengths of that research. Um, and, and really when you're looking at the types of things that they're studying, because they're studying some of the things that now we're just starting to see behavior analysts get interested in, such as burnout, turnover, presenteeism, absenteeism, um, you know, 
perceptions of supervisor support, those types of things, which are really common um, in, in the IO psych literature. So um, what are some of the, the methodologies, or not methodologies, but like the like actual like kind of assessments? Because you talked about like the personality assessments, and my brain goes to like MBTI, but I'm like, okay, I know it's more mm-hmm. than just that. Um, and kind of, I don't know, what's the... Yeah. I could see it, you know, the purpose being we want the best fit, but then I also feel like there's some weird biases that get thrown in there too. So mm-hmm. how does that kind of work through? Yeah, and, and I'll be honest with you, Kelly, I'm not as well-versed in the selection side of things. So this is why I'm really grateful that I have traditionally trained IO psych uh, faculty who teach the personnel psych class, the org psych class um, that are kind of the foundational um, IO classes. Um, you know, I, I think um, there's enough research out there about the MBTI and, and some of those personality assessments. Um, but they'll do th- they'll do other types of assessments too. They they're called um, competency assessments, um, and uh, and I cannot remember. I should have I should have thought to write um, those down because uh, they they come up in in terms of um, just even when you're looking at job descriptions for IO psychologists, um, competency models, I think is actually what I what I'm talking about there. Um, and doing job analyses and you know really identifying the knowledge, skills, and abilities um, in order to you know use job analysis to inform job descriptions. And then those are then used to develop the um, you know, structured interviewing um, sets of questions and the way that they're going to, um, I, you know, assess for whether or not people have certain knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, but there's a, a test um, called the Wanderlick um, test that it's actually used in the NFL too. That has a ties back to IO psychology, which I thought was really interesting. So you you can actually go and look up the um, Wanderlick intelligence um, test results for every NFL quarterback. Um, so to those of you listening, go look up um, the, the score for the quarterback of your, your choosing your favorite quarterback and, and see how they rate. Um, and uh, that's always a, a fan favorite. I had to teach personnel psych once um, when I first arrived at UMD um, because the faculty member who taught it was out on leave. And they asked me and I was like, oh, sure, I can teach this. And as I'm teaching it, and this is this is one of the things that is interesting about being a behavior analyst in a traditional IO program in a traditional psychology department. Um, I had to get over this, like, oh, that sounds silly. Like, why would they, you know, why why would they use personality tests for this? And in really um, sit back, listen, be open to various perspectives, right? And start looking at it through my behavior analytic lens and viewpoint. Um, and when I did that, you know, instead of, you know, kind of closing the doors and saying all that cognitive stuff is kind of woo woo, um, you can really start to see the benefit of both, um, understanding other research methodologies, um, other theories and, um, and, and other, and how to interpret the findings of that research or to use their research to inform your own research. And that's really kind of where I've um, been trying to, what I say, like marry IO and OBM um, research together is how can I study some of the topics in IO within the behavior analytic community and use that to inform more behavior analytic research, intervention focused research moving forward. 
Um, so there's a lot of, lot of value in that. So I know that that kind of sways away from the asking about the different types of assessments. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is, those are some of the things that our, our students are learning. Um, and probably one of the fascinating things that has happened in the time that we've had our graduate program is there's been a shift in the IO um, field um, away from annual performance evaluations. And, and some people may have you know, you may hear that or read articles or see articles posted on like Harvard Business Review about the shift away from the annual performance review, although sometimes it's required legally, um, but there's more of a focus on this ongoing, more frequent assessment of performance and feedback related to performance. Um, and so that was really cool because it was happening while I was here and I was sharing research from our field to back that up. Um, and so it, you know, it was sort of one of those things where I was like, oh, the OBMers we're ahead of the game, you know, when it came to things related to performance um, reviews and performance feedback. Oh, yeah, there, there's a few things that I want to touch on, like um, one, that discussion of competencies, you know, mm -hmm. it's there's competencies and then there's the skills that go within that. And so and that's, you know, being able to see that differentiation because um, Leah, who are, are um, one of the other members of our team, that's what she does. Um, she's she's a undercover OBMer. that's, you know, she goes, she's the behavior person. Um, that's kind of her informal title, but it's going in and looking at the systems and everything. And what she started to find was a lot of common problems, if you will, where the competencies weren't really competencies, you know, they were just mm -hmm. the skills that were listed. And it's like, well, no, th those are skills, the competency is the overarching. And so learning to have that discussion of, you know, why it's important to break those apart, because it mm -hmm. does, then it informs what your job description looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what, when you have performance reviews, what does performance look like? You know, what does progress look like? And you have to have those real salient, informative measures in place. Um, and the person also has to know what those things are, because mm -hmm. that's crucial as well. So mm -hmm. I, the competency things, and then talking about that translation and the marrying between the two. And I think that's what's really cool with, you know, putting things through the behavior analytic lens, because, you know, these other ways and theories exist because it's obviously reinforcing for somebody. So, you know, well, we think that this is the best science ever, um, you know, it's you no know, other people have reinforcers and different things and, you know, find other theories and methodologies, you know, more preferable and, and cool. Yeah. Have a conversation, listen to what it is and then start to tease apart like, oh, that sounds a lot like, you know, it could be an SD or it could be a motivating operation. If we were to put it in our language, let's play around with it, you know, and just kind of see what happens. It's, it's nifty to turn a little knob and see what changes, if anything. Um, yep. And I think that kind of goes into with like the scientist practitioner model. So you talked about having background doing a rat lab and taking experimental analysis, um, which a lot of people don't have that experience because um, mm -hmm. I don't think the experimental side is required anymore in the coursework. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think quali quantitative, qualitative, quantitative is either, which I admittedly was awful and experimental, absolutely dug quantitative. Um, couldn't understand the graphs to save my life, but like the concept of it made total sense to me. Um, and I and I think it is informative because it gives you, an, and I'm hoping this is where you can kind of help out, is to, to tact like what that relationship is and why having experience and the kind of experimental side is so important when we want to, when, when we become practitioners, because most of us will try to, we'll, we'll play both those roles. You know, I'm a scientist first, and then I go and apply the science to this thing over here. And so, you know, that's that's what you're doing. And I don't know, maybe you can articulate how that marries together. Yep. Yeah. And and 
before I go into really what is the scientist practitioner model, um, maybe even in, in kind of connecting to what we were just talking about, um, if you have that basis in the science, it's going to make it easier to interpret other literatures and other scientific disciplines through your behavior analytic lens. And so an observation that I've had and, um, and I have asked um, other faculty colleagues who have had the um, experience of um, working with or teaching in more traditional um, um, departments, and they've had the same observation that it's a lot easier for somebody who has a background in behavior analysis and really un understands the concepts and principles of behavior analysis, the science, to read literature in, for example, IO psych through that behavior analytic lens. Um, and I think back to my own, my dissertation focused on feedback seeking behavior. So not giving feedback, but actually the employee themselves seeking feedback on their performance and how that influenced their performance. And there's a whole literature in IO psych, which I found out later after I defended my dissertation. And, and, and I mean, I knew some of it was there when I was doing my dissertation, but my dissertation research was really focused on what was out there in, in behavior analytic literature. Um, but I extended some of that research when I came to UMD and some of my former graduate students now, um, you know, really were interested in performance feedback, feedback seeking, goal setting. Um, and all of those are very prevalent in the IO literature. And so, um, you know, one of the things that you'll find in the IO literature is they'll talk about motivators. And for those of you who are listening and can't see me, I'm like putting that in quotes, right? Motivators. Um, and, and like you said, Kelly, when you are reading that as a behavior analyst, you're saying, oh, well, okay, they're putting antecedent stimuli, consequence stimuli, motivational, uh, motivating operations, any other, you know, SD, um, under that umbrella of motivators. And it kind of made me angry at first because I'm like, you're not using the right terms. But, you know, and then you're just like, eh, eh, eh. and like, I'm just yelling at the paper as I'm reading the article, right? I'm like, this isn't right. Like, please write it in the right way. Um, and so one of the things I challenged my graduate students to do was to read some of the feedback goal setting literature in behavior analysis and OVM um, and, and incorporate that into their theses. And I saw how incredibly difficult it was because they didn't even, they didn't have a basis of the language that we use, the technical jargon um, that we use. And, and once I explained it and gave them a little bit of a foundation, then they could see it, right? They could put it into the three-term or four-term contingency, and they could separate out the different motivators that they were talking about in these IO articles into things that, you know, would proceed or, um, or follow behavior. And so, um, so I think that that part is really interesting um, because the revert, you know, a behavior analyst can read outside of the field much more easily if they have a really strong foundation in the science, but somebody outside of our field is going to struggle to read through their lens um, because they don't have a foundation in, in the basic principles, um, which is why at the undergrad level, when I teach my ABA class, I really, really focus on behavioral principles before we go into any application because I want them to be able to understand and relate it back to their own life. So they're kind of using that to say, oh, well, I learned this in my cognitive psych class with you know, here's how I can look at that from a behavioral point of view. Um, and, um, and, and also um, wanted to point out before going more in depth in scientist practitioner model that, you know, topics such as job satisfaction, work engagement, 
burnout, absenteeism, presenteeism, um, turnover are really common in the IO literature, and they and they are becoming, you know, increasingly of interest in, in um, OBM and just in the field of behavior analysis in general, right? Because we've all been talking about, you know, the large turnover rates um, in the field. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, it's an article that Tom Winnie published in JOBM, and I think, I think it was in 2013, I didn't make a note on my piece of paper here, but the article is titled Job Satisfaction, IO Psychology and Organizational Behavior Management Perspectives. And I think it's a great article to go back and read. Um, and in, in just the abstract alone, I had to write down this quote that Tom um, the statement that he made. He said, members of the OBM culture should not eschew the IOP culture's practices that might contribute to OBM practitioners' ability to effectively establish the social validity of their interventions, particularly large-scale interventions. And he's really talking about, you know, like using job satisfaction as a way to assess social validity. And I remember shortly um, after I started my lab here at UMD, and I started including measures of like task satisfaction with the experimental tasks that we were doing, because in the back of my head, I was thinking, and this might be because of my traditional psych undergrad and or communication undergrad um, background, I was thinking, well, if we're putting these feedback interventions or goal setting interventions into place, and they're reducing the well-being of the participant, then why would we want to put that into place in the workplace? Because that's only going to contribute to decreased job satisfaction and increased turnover. So again, kind of using the science to figure out practically what does this mean, and um, you know, so so now after that long-winded thing to go into scientist practitioner model, um, historically it's known as the Boulder model. So just a fun fact: um, if you if you go to Wikipedia, you will see that it was called the the Boulder model, and there's also a Vale um, model. And, um, and, and Dr. Dick Malott uh, wrote an article that I'll, I'll reference here in just a second, um, where he thought maybe he would start the Kalamazoo model, which I thought was kind of funny because, you know, it's all location-based. Um, but there's a special issue on the scientist practitioner model in applied behavior analysis. If you aren't familiar with it, um, go check it out. It was published in 2018, and it was in the journal um, Education and Treatment of Children. So that's not a journal that I typically... Um, read because it's outside of my my scope of practice um, or it's outside. Of, yeah, I call it outside of my scope of practice because I'm not trained to work in, in um, any clinical areas um, with children. Um, but when I was just kind of thinking about having this conversation um, with you today, Kelly, I wanted to see, you know, what, you know, what, what is out there within our field? Um, and that special issue came up and it has, um, a, you know, a, a really interesting um, group of articles, um, some just kind of talking about the model and how it applies to the field. Um, but then also this article that um, Dr. Malat wrote called a science-based practitioner model. And then there's a really good commentary, commentary that was invited to specifically respond to Dr. Malat's um, article that was written by Mary Jane Weiss um, called The Concept of the scientist practitioner and its extension to behavior analysis and read both of those because it's super interesting to see kind of both sides of the argument. And I'm always going to be a proponent of, of knowing both sides of the story, right. And hearing multiple perspectives. Um, 
but the scientist practitioner model or SPM, as you'll also see it referred to, um, is really a training model for graduate programs in applied psychology areas. And it started in clinical psych. That's um, kind of where it, you know, has its roots. Um, but we use it, um, we, we, you know, advertise in our IO psych program that we follow a scientist practitioner model. Um, and it's really, um, and, and you'll see, uh, I know um, West Virginia University on their website, they talk about the scientist practitioner model, like most major um, ABA programs talk about the scientist practitioner model. Um, and, and it's a goal, we want to train future practitioners to embrace the scientific model and use it to inform their practice, right? Um, so we make sure we do this by making sure that we're integrating research methodology and theory into the graduate curriculum. Um, and then kind of our assumed outcomes, right, are that we're effective consumers of research. I mean, this is what I try to tell even my, my undergrad stats students. They're like, why do I have to learn statistics? I don't care. I'm not going to use it when I'm a psychologist. And I'm like, but you're going to read the research and use that in your practice, hopefully, like that's what you should be doing. Um, and, you know, so you need to be able to read it and you need to be able to read it effectively um, and be able to interpret and also to be able to critically um, look at the methodology because um, I, I can't tell you the number of articles and I'm not going to say that they're within our field, but just in, in any field of, of science um, where sometimes the conclusions, if you only read the abstract or the discussion of an article, they might be a little bit inflated. And then you go in and you look at the methodology and you're like, oh, like, I don't know if you can really say that based on the methods that you used or, you know, the p-value for the, you know, statistics that you ran. Um, or, you know, a lot of people don't report effect size um, because, you know, those are things and we're seeing a little bit more of that being done in our field. But I think we need to, you know, increase our use of that to really talk about, you know, how large of an effect are we seeing when um, these changes are being made. Um, but what we want practitioners in the field to be able to do is to use empirical research, use the scientific method to inform their practice. And, you know, in ABA, this is program design. This is evaluation of programs, right? Um, we want to make sure that um, our practitioners are pursuing um, socially significant target behaviors with science-focused solutions, evidence-based solutions. Um, and we want, and what I wish that we'd have more of in the field is that when practitioners are, because they're doing many experiments. I mean, any, any practitioner who's been in the field for a while, you're tweaking things, right? Like things aren't working. So I'm going to make a tweak. I'm going to see what happens. And you know what we need more of? We need more of practitioners saying, hey, this is what the research told me to do. The research, I, I did this. It didn't work that way for this particular client. and like, here's what I did to change it. And here's what worked because that information, the mini experiments and the daily to day research that practitioners are doing would be super valuable to the faculty and other researchers and the labs who are doing this research that's supposed to inform practice. Right. So there it needs to be like a cyclical uh, relationship where, you know, research is informing practice and then practices, you know, seeing what happens when we put this into the messy applied world, because the applied <laughs> applied world is fascinating to me. It's where I love to do most of my research It's where I did my thesis. And I found so much variability, but I could explain all that variability, which was cool. Um, but my graphs didn't look nice. <laughs> they didn't. I mean, like the, the data lines were all over the place. 
Um, and, and, and that's okay if we can explain why it's happening, but then we need to let, you know, the scientists who for, you know, the bulk of their work is really doing research, we need to let them know what's happening in the applied world. So I'd love to see more practitioners publishing, you know, case studies. I'd like to see more space within our journals for practitioners to publish. Um, I'd like to see more presentations from our practitioners at conferences. Um, you know, so kind of focusing on that dissemination. So I think, you know, we're we're doing a good job in some ways of making sure it's within the curriculum. But then once our practitioners are out there, we need to make a better, we need to make more effort to support ongoing applied research and dissemination of those findings. Yeah, because I think it's interesting because, you know, you'll read a, a new thing that comes out, a new, a new acronym comes mm -hmm. out and you go and you read articles about it and say, this is how I did it. Okay, cool. This is the steps I need to take. These are the, you know, things I need to put in place and you go and you put it in and it doesn't work mm -hmm. or it's it's uncomfortable or like the other person's not responding the way that you thought, like you thought they were going to be overjoyed and like, yes, this is the best learning experience ever. And it's like, no, I don't like this. And it's, it's tough because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well shoot now what? And yeah, I don't, it, I do get frustrated because I feel like when it comes to research and reading publications, that kind of curiosity and seeking out those little kind of details that, you know, oh, well, that's, well, it's part of the unique human and the unique environment. Mm -hmm. um, and if we do enough of them, then we might start to see patterns, but it also mm -hmm. should spur creativity. And the way that our publications are right now, there's not a lot of that creativity being reinforced and facilitated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're starting to see more, but again, yeah, I would love to see more case studies. You know, I always would read and go, show me something that went poorly. Like show yeah. me an experiment that went absolutely off the rails and you just went, well, crap. And I had to throw mm -hmm. out all my data, like, and not just in a poster session. Yeah. Like yes. I like, because the poster sessions, I'm, they're very stressful for someone that has anxiety. Like I, there's a lot of people in there and now you have to, you know, your mask is on. And so I really can't have a communication with you and, you know, mm -hmm. oh, let me pick up if, if someone does, you know, is nice enough to print off their poster. I still have some, but I'm like, the letters are super bitty tiny. Um, like I can't read this. Yeah. And and yeah, how are we sharing that information? Like I this is I love our Friday chats mm -hmm. and we do our lives because mm -hmm. it is that's it, what it feels like to me is let's play, you know, let's let's talk about what's going on and, and ideas and you know being creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the file drawer problem, is what they would call it. Like the, you know, the research that you didn't get your statistically significant results, so it wasn't going to get published and it's just gonna sit there and it's like. But that's the stuff that needs to be out there because, you know, how much rework are our researchers and scientists doing, you know, running the same study to find out that it doesn't work, but they didn't, they could have known that it didn't work had that information been more widely disseminate, disseminated um, in some way, shape or form. Um, it was interesting because one of the articles in this special issue, um, it was uh, titled a survey of the current state of the scientist practitioner model in applied behavior analysis, um, Schaller and colleagues. Um, but so they did a survey of um, masters and doctoral level behavior analysts. Um, and they didn't make a distinction between practitioners and faculty. They noted that as a limitation. And I think their sample size was around 300 some. Um, but what they reported that I thought was interesting is a, a little less than half, um, it was about 46%, of master's level practitioners who responded 
um, were required to complete a thesis. So less than half of master's level practitioners are doing theses. Um, and over 72% of all of the master's um, level practitioners, so that was 185, reported zero publications. So this is where we start to see that gap between the scientist and the practitioner, right? So we have you know, less than half who are doing theses. And even those who are doing theses, most of those theses are not getting published, except for like in the, now we have like this digital conservancy, which is, you know, nice because it will show up in, in a Google Scholar search and stuff like that. Um, but those aren't, they're, they're peer reviewed to the extent that the students committee has reviewed them. Um, and a lot of times they're lengthy and, you know, they have a lot of extra stuff that wouldn't be in a, a publication, which is sometimes a good thing. Um, but, you know, again, it means that there's a lot of research that's being done that's not getting out there. And maybe it is getting out there at, you know, smaller local regional conferences um, or at a big ABAI poster session that happens over lunch and like half the people don't get to see it. Um, or, you know, a lot of practitioners aren't going to certain conferences um, because it's not feasible for them to do so or economical for them to do so. So how are we going to get this information out there? Um, Another thing that was uh, that was interesting, though, in that same survey is that 95% of those who responded reported contacting the literature for work-related purposes um, on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. So with daily being about 20%, weekly being about 30%, and uh, monthly being a little over 40%. So our practitioners are contacting the science. And I see things like, um, like I, I offer a monthly journal club. And, you know, so I get together with, you know, a group, a small group of people every month and we chit chat about the literature. So there are ways through continuing education that, you know, our practitioners can continue to contact the literature. But I, and, and I have my own thoughts on, you know, like, should every graduate student do a thesis? Um, we're having that conversation in our own graduate program right now because it, our IO students are all required to do um, a, a research project. Um, and there's a lot of value in that, um, but the value isn't necessarily always seen by the student. And so those are some of the conversations that we're, that we're seeing because you're learning a lot of skills, you're learning how to write, you're learning scientific writing. Um, and in IO psych, you're going to be writing a lot of white papers. And I'm sure that practitioners and behavior analysis are writing reports on a regular basis. So there's a lot of shaping those writing skills that comes through that process. Um, but what we, but what we have seen is that, um, you know, trying to make sure that whatever that research project is making sure that's going to be aligned with their future professional goals, um, isn't always the easiest thing, um, to do. And so in, in that special issue article, if you read through Malat's, um, he actually talks about how, um, this, um, I think it was just a suggestion because I don't think that this is something that was being done at Western, but I know at Western, not all of the, um, the students needed to do a, a thesis. And that's currently like they have so many students who are just practicum students versus thesis students. Um, but he did talk about, um, you know, case studies and like basically putting together this huge portfolio of case study after case study after case study. Because then once you have a whole bunch of those small case studies, you can start to see the patterns um, that are uncovered. So even though there are some things that I didn't agree with in, in his article and that Dr. Mary Jane Weiss didn't agree with in his article, there were some nuggets in there that really did kind of make you think about 
are there other more creative ways that we can, you know, um, kind of cultivate an appreciation for science and teach some of those um, empirical research skills, um, but maybe in a different way than a traditional thesis. So that's just kind of a thought that I had as I was reading through it. Um, it's still something that I'm, um, that I'm, you know, kind of just mulling over myself. Um, but in, in her article, Dr. Mary Jane Weiss um, really does provide really compelling commentary. Um, and she, she made the statement um, that we, the continuance of and adherence to the scientist practitioner model and behavior analysis um, is necessary to protect and advance the science. And I really think that that's a great statement. And she makes another statement um, about how science is our compass in the field of behavior analysis. And if you look at our ethics code, it's all over in there. You know, um, providing effective treatment needs to be based on the science. Uh, there are ethics codes directly related to research. Um, you know, um, so it's, I don't know how we have the how we have the field of behavior analysis and the practice of behavior analysis without the science of behavior analysis being fused into um, the training of our practitioners. So this is a conversation that we had a little bit yesterday, and I'm hoping to continue it today and maybe next week as well, is, um, you know, the kind of long term. So, you know, I, I remember when I went through grad school and I was very much like jargon heavy. So I mm -hmm. jump into my first job and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to make these parents use all these technical terms and they have to learn what it means. Mm -hmm. And in the discussion yesterday we were having, um, it was said they don't want a science class. They, they come to you because they have a problem. They don't want to sit through a science class first. Oh man. Okay. So what do I do? Like I shift my behavior and, and now I, I've have like my own lexicon and I've been slowly teaching, but I can see a lot of people losing sight of it because, well, the insurance companies, um, don't like it when I use that kind of language, or I have to keep explaining it over and over again. And so that kind of shifts a little bit. And so, you know, our behavior gets shaped by the contingencies that we come across. Mm -hmm. And if the contingencies that you find yourself in are not facilitating looking into the research and kind of pulling apart the layers and going, okay, if I take this and I lay it over my situation, what does it look like? Where, where does it line mm -hmm. up? You know, if that's not being reinforced, then of course our science isn't going to go that route. Um, because yeah. why would I? So, yeah. you know, wh what are, what are some recommendations? Because like I said, you know, I, I have a small issue with it being removed from the coursework, but mm -hmm. like, what are some other ways that you think people can start to, you know, if they're currently in school, that's, you know, a little bit easier because you have access. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you're doing like online, that's really difficult. Like, how do you build up these kind of case studies? Um, yeah. You know, what, is, what would that process look like? Yeah, well, you know, and I think, you know, part of it as a, as a practitioner, because I think even when I, when I think about coaching consulting that I do, you know, taking your client notes, you know, and maybe taking time to review those kind of through your scientific lens on a regular basis to see what kind of patterns am I discovering. But you're right, Kelly, you know, if you're, if your day-to-day interactions, um, and, and I'm thinking of this through my training development lens, right? Um, we talk about transfer of training. If the behavior isn't reinforced in the work environment, like it was in the training environment, if it's not well-supported, well, that behavior is going to stop happening, right? Um, 
or it's not, you know, over time, it's not going to be done correctly, accurately, all those types of things. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you go through graduate school and when you're in your graduate program, you're using that technical language, you're always contacting the science and then you leave. And it's like, now I got to figure out how to do this on my own, or I got to find a group of people who also appreciate the science and, you know, start like those like journal clubs and, um, you know, other ways to, you know, connect with the scientific community while you're, you know, a practitioner. And I have a sense that there are some organizations that do that, that make space for that. And I'm not sure how, how that's all going. I just, you know, from having conversations with various people in the field, it sounds like there are some organizations where, you know, they do internally, um, you know, kind of make sure that there are, are, are um, conversations being had about, um, you know, the latest research and how to implement that in practice and that sort of thing. Um, but I wonder too, if part of what needs to happen and maybe this needs to be integrated into um, graduate curriculum, because um, it's certainly something that we talk about even in IOSYC is how do we make sure that our students are prepared when they, when they are going out into the work world as practitioners to translate the science? Because it might seem like, oh, I'm using the science because that's what I was taught to do. And so I'm going to use it. Well, then I, I'm you know, not coming into contact with positive consequences for using my technical jargon. So I have to switch and use something else that the insurance company is going to like or that my client's going to like, that the parent of my client is going to like. Um, and, and so then I start using that language more. Um, and, and so maybe we need to do a better job in training the translation um, and, and, and making practitioners aware that, um, you know, these are some of the barriers, these are the things that they're going to come up across when they go out into the world. Um, because I know when, um, in, in our graduate program, some of our students will participate in what is called an IO consulting challenge, and they get together with other IO, like students from, they get paired with other students in IO programs in the region. It's really cool, but I would never want to do it myself. I, I'm like, what my students go through, I would never want to experience because they have like three days of no sleep and they have, you know, this very short turnaround where they're given, you know, an organizational issue and they have to come up with, you know, a proposal and put together a presentation and give it to the client organization. Um, and it really is, you know, probably very similar to what some consultants will experience and why I decided that route would burn me out way too quick. Um, but what our students have observed every year that they participate, the ones who participate um, come back and they say, the UMD students were the ones who are going and looking at the literature when they were coming up for coming up with proposed solutions to the request for proposals, what they call the RFP. And, um, you know, and in other programs in IO, um, those students are much more versed in consulting skills and presentation skills. So we see a gap in IO, and I imagine that this exists in ABA, um, that some programs are more of that balance between scientist and practitioner, and some are more practitioner scientists, and some are just more practitioner altogether. Like we're gonna give you the skills to go out and be a consultant and do the thing. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, and, and, and I feel like in, in talking to um, colleagues in the field of behavior analysis, um, we do see that, that there are certain graduate programs and there's, there's gonna be a difference between master's level and doctoral level in any discipline, right? Um, 
but there's going to be a difference in the amount of, um, of, of, of science and research methodology and theory that's really infused into those master's level programs. Um, and I imagine that part of that has to do with, I mean, you're looking at what are the requirements set by, you know, the, the VCS, right, and the BACB um, that, that need to be in this curriculum, and how much extra room do we have, you know, to um, integrate more of the science into it when we have all these other things. So there's competing contingencies even in the curriculum on what to focus on, right? Um, is that making sense? Quick pause in the discussion to give you the first of your two keywords if you were listening for CEs. The first word is solve, S-O-L-V-E. Both IOPsych and OBM seek to solve similar problems. Solve. Oh yeah. Well, and then you think too, um, while I was at UNT, they had had the undergrad program it was like, I believe the first one um, that was a specific behavior analysis program. And we had 23 and 2700. We used the Miller book as you do. Mm -hmm. You have great um, programmed instruction. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, my students would get really frustrated because they're like, oh my gosh, I put the word reinforcement in like 60,000 times. And I was like, but you know it now, don't you? Don't you? Yep. And like, yes. <laughs> like, cool. But then UNT changed their core curriculum. Uh, what's the word? Um, requirements. And so mm -hmm. we had to go back and revamp our core curriculum. So there's those things that come in too, of mm -hmm. like, man, we still want to teach because this was a, a unit, was a core class that we were getting mm -hmm. non-behavior analysis students coming in and quote unquote, converting them. Um, yes. <laughs> my little evil fingertips laugh, haha. Um, but which is really fun though. And so again, when that light bulb goes yeah. on and they're like, this mm -hmm. makes sense. So yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many there, there's, it's, it's always systems. Um, it always comes down mm -hmm. to a systems issue, but you're looking at, again, these competing contingencies, what's reinforcing for this college or university may not be as reinforcing for another mm -hmm. one based on who your dean is or the president or something like yep. that. So it's, it's always, I don't know, this is where, this is the fun part of science is to go, okay, what's going on in this situation? Let's mm -hmm. start peeling it back this one. Okay. Take this layer away. What does it look like now? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's where that shift happened. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Now we can adjust as needed. Yeah, I imagine it also happens in supervision. Um, and, and my supervision experience was different because it was very OBM focused. But I would imagine, you know, that in uh, all of my hours were done while I was in my program and not everybody has the ability to accrue their hours to sit for the exam in, in the graduate curriculum. Um, I remember I consulted with a, a, a university that was thinking about putting together uh, a proposal for a graduate program in applied behavior analysis. It was um, and they didn't have any behavior analysts in their department at the time. So, um, but one of the faculty happened to know me. And so they brought me in to, to talk about it. And I started to bring up all these things like, well, you know, there's more to an ABA program than just teaching what's required by the VCS. And you want to make sure that you have well-rounded practitioners um, and that they know that there are other areas of specialty within the field of behavior analysis than just you know, working in the area of autism and, um, and IDD where, I mean, granted 76% of our practitioners are in those areas, but I'm telling you, Kelly, I, it always astounds me when I come across a practitioner who says, I didn't even know that I could go into things like OBM or that I could, you know, use my background in behavior analysis to go into an area in health, sport and fitness. And I'm like, 
to me, that's a disservice to the field, to the science, and to our practitioners. If if they and and I think, you know, at least based on the number of times that I get asked to come and present to different graduate programs, um, that that's changing. That you know that practitioners are more well informed as they're going through their graduate curriculum, but it's you know like where where does that need to happen i guess for me it happened when i was an undergrad i got really lucky right i was you know in an institution where they had um you know multiple classes in behavior analysis and the faculty um had you know different areas of specialty and they exposed us to different areas of specialty and that's what i do in my undergrad aba class i make sure that they know about all the different areas um because if i had to do it back like over again, I probably would be an applied animal behaviorist because I think that that stuff is so cool and so fascinating. And, um, and I loved working in the animal lab. I loved working with our humane society here in Duluth for a while when I had the time and capacity to supervise students there. Um, and then I found out that to become a certified animal behaviorist, I would have had to do a dissertation related to animal behavior. And I was like, I can't go back to school anymore. Um, but you know, like that, and that's what I see in practitioners now because um, one of the other roles that I serve is the executive director for the behavior analysis and health sport and fitness special interest group. And um, you know, how, like practitioners are wondering how can they re-specialize now that they know that this thing exists, that they can, you know, um, apply a science that they love to a passion that they have, um, and whether that's you know they continue to work with the same client population or a different client population. Um, you know, to me, that says that we aren't showcasing all that our science can do. And that seems like it needs to be a core component of any graduate curriculum. But if you have a graduate curriculum that's specifically set up to teach practitioners to work in a very specific little niche within the field, then they're not going to get exposed to that. So, and I don't know how to fix, I don't know how to fix that part. We started a podcast. <laughs> we started a podcast because we um lee and i I've both came yeah and because it was it was it was disheartening to me to realize that not everybody had the same experiences that i did because going mm -hmm. through unt um it was you know do you want to dabble in this i would you know catch a yeah. professor getting coffee in the office and be like hey I, I have an idea for like two seconds if you've got it and yeah. having that quick little discussion leads to okay let's play around with this next semester which leads to you know oh someone mm -hmm. else is interested and now we formed a club like that's cool yep. so you know it, it's I don't I'm with you I'm like I don't know what to do because it's not it's not bad but right as as kind of an underlying theme I think in a lot of our talks and from a lot of our guests is that creativity and curiosity are so vital to making progress and what yeah. and I think defining progress as furthering the science um making better humans, um, better environments, better mm -hmm. settings, understanding other individuals on a much better basis. Like there's lots of fluffy ways mm -hmm. I can say it, but for me, that's what success of the science is. Right now, if I Google, you know, ABA, it's not pretty what comes back. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very eye-opening and it's, it's extremely humbling because it's like, Oh, shnikes, how did we get here? And, and I yeah. can tell you how we got here. I have a few theories. Um, mm -hmm. And it's unfortunately, we're not a long history. So it's like we, we've right. done not a little bit damage. I don't want to call it that, but we definitely, you know, need to be aware of what's happening and what mm -hmm. the potentials are should this continue down this path. And then mm -hmm. if you've also got option two, then what would option two's consequences look like? But mm -hmm. I think this is a good lead into, um, you know, seeing 
the systems and everything with OBM and IOPsych and, you know, how individuals move within that and make progress and then shifting into also that health and fitness side. And so seeing that Mm -hmm. overlap, which then leads you to looking at burnout, because I mean, you've listed off like 15 titles that you have right now, Um, you know, just Mm -hmm. little projects that you've got going on at all times. And, you know, personally, I think a lot of us experience that of like, well, I feel like I either need to compete in the field in some way, shape or form, like I, and you know, whether that's meeting billing deadlines or minimum hours or whatever, Mm -hmm. or just, oh man, you know, so-and-so for my class is doing this. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to step up my game or, you know, look at this person getting published or whatever. And, you know, we have kind of those, you know, not great motivations for ourselves um, Mm -hmm. and, and setups. So what kind of led you into looking at the health and fitness side and then specifically looking at burnout within that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of it was just, you know, personal, you know, health and fitness interests, right. You know, just taking care of myself and realizing that I didn't do a good job of that when I was a grad student or, um, especially when I, you know, became a new faculty member. Um, so really my interest as it relates to health and well-being in the workplace in the organizational sense was very much um, transpired out of my own personal experiences. Because when I started my faculty position, I was just going to extend my dissertation research. I would, you know, set up my lab um, because lab-based research was a lot easier to do than applied research, even though I love applied research and it's messy. Um, the contingency was, well, you need to be a productive researcher in order to get tenure. So lab-based research, it was going to be. Um, and it's totally fine because I liked, you know, doing that work too. Um, but I gave uh, a talk at ABAI in San Diego in, in 2018, and I shared a really personal story at that conference. Um, and, um, and that story really was the, the springboard. Um, it, you know, when I shared that story, I shared how it was the springboard for the more traditional um, type of research, research um, that I'm doing now. Um, so I got burnt out. <laughs> I almost left um, before I actually, I remember telling my parents after my first year in academia, that if the second year was anything like the first, I don't know that I would last very long. Um, there was just so much stuff, but I also realized that a lot of the expectations that I had, I was putting on myself. And so I think, um, if, if you're the type of person who has very high expectations for yourself, um, and, and have, uh, you know, if we're going to use labels that, are commonly used in other fields, that type A personality, um, I'm, I'm definitely there. Um, and, and so I probably brought a lot of it on myself, um, but I you know, felt burned out. I felt very unfulfilled on a professional level. Um, I started to question if I made the right decision being in a non-behavior analytic department versus a traditional psychology department. Um, and so I started having um, conversations with a, f- a friend of mine who at the time happened to be the employee health and wellness coach on our campus. Um, and um, in, in, within the, our employee well-being program, um, we ended up joining forces um, and we co-chaired what we called, uh, it was a grassroots effort kind of cross campus. It was called the UMD Wellbeing Collaborative. Um, and we did that for several years until she um, recently, well, I guess not so recent anymore in March of 2020, not a, not because of the pandemic, just coincidental that the week that everything shut down, she was also leaving to go on to new and better things, which is great. I'm so happy for her, but I was sad because this was like my work best friend leaving. Um, 
but I, you know, we, we did that. Um, we really sparked interest. We, we started to find other people across campus in different departments. Like I have a colleague in public health. I have a colleague in pharmacy. I have a colleague in the business school and healthcare management. You know, I started to find other people who are interested in, um, in creating healthier work environments um, to really promote employee well-being. Um, I started to read literature outside of the field of behavior analysis, um, you know, uh, on topics related to um, health and employee health and well-being, um, started to integrate those measures of well-being into my research, um, and really started to talk about the need for behavior analysts in OBM to start caring about employee well-being. Um, in addition to employee performance. So what's really cool is if you go to the OBM Network's website now, you will see on kind of their list of different areas, there is a health and well-being because they're acknowledging that this is an area in which um, it's important for us to focus. You know, as a science, if we're going to continue to grow and expand, we need to care about the people who are employed um, in, in human service settings, especially, right? Because that's where we're seeing a large amount of turnover right now. Um, but, you know, and, and it's not just caring about it in terms of, oh, we want to make sure that people are satisfied, but looking at the impact that our interventions have on employee uh, measures of well-being, um, including satisfaction and other outcomes. Um, so um, when I was reading outside literature, um, I realized that, um, you know, things related to burnout really spoke to me. Um, and I realized that there was a need to start looking at this more deeply within um, the, the human service professions, the helping professions. Um, in, at, at UMD, the psychology department is in the College of Education and Human Service Professions. And so, you know, we're with social work, we're with education, we're with, um, you know, the um, public health, um, applied human sciences is, you know, things like coaches, athletic trainers, um, outdoor ed, physical activity, social work, like we're all in the same, you know, and all of our our, our entire focus in our college is about helping other people. Well, the helpers get burnt out. Um, and I think Kelly, you and I have talked about caregiver burnout too. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, we need to figure out how can we, you know, this is a passion of ours to help other people. And how can we make sure that our passion for helping other people doesn't burn us out? Because if we don't take care of ourselves and take care of our, our coworkers, our colleagues, then we're not going to have the positive impact that we want to have on those that we're trying to help. Um, and so um, really, once I started kind of merging my personal experiences with my professional background, my academic training background, and because I advise in the IO psych program, I was like, this is kind of a, a niche area where I can um, kind of put my efforts um, and feel like I'm making an impact. Um, and um, and just kind of saw saw an opportunity to kind of blend IO psychology, um, OBM, and this other area that if you're interested in anything related to employee health and well-being, um, there's a small like subfield called occupational health psychology, which would be like a subfield of, of IO psych, but it's really interdisciplinary. So in that um, little field is where um, you'll find people with a variety of backgrounds all working toward anything related to health, safety, wellness of employees in occupational settings. Um, so that's how I kind of got to doing research in, uh, in burnout, self-care, um, those sorts of topics. You know, it's like we forget that um, if they can't come to work or they can't work, then like things don't happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, being able to understand 
the other contingencies that people are under or some mm -hmm. of the other variables that come into their life. Like, you know, it's the old thing was like, well, you know, a boss doesn't want to hear about your personal life. But at the same time, though, it's not that you need to overshare, but, yeah. you know, if something happens that is going to affect your performance. So, you know, my last year was rough, like everybody died mm -hmm. on me. And so my boss was thankfully wonderful enough that it was like, just tell me what you need. Like, mm -hmm. if you need to take a few days off, that's cool. Do, do you, you know, what, what can I do to help you? That was the response as opposed to like, Ooh, yeah. Are you still going to get your work done? Like mm -hmm. it's that, and I don't, I don't know. It's, it's being human um, and going into that kind of compassionate and looking at, again, it's, you know, just because you're a scientist doesn't mean that you have to dismiss the organism that you're with. Like that's the whole yeah. joy of what we do is we understand that everyone is a unique set of variables and your behavior is shaped by whatever you've been through in these mm -hmm. long learning histories that make you who you are. Mm -hmm. So you know, when we discount that, it does a disservice because, you know, we're not utilizing all of the preferences or information um, that the other person need, that should, you know, gives us mm -hmm. to make a program that they're going to be able to follow, maybe not effortlessly, because that would be great if we could, but, you know, I'm more inclined to do something when I feel like my voice has been heard and it's going to be easier for me. Like, cool. You've taken into account all of the things that make me happy. Yeah. I'll mm -hmm. do the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, so with looking at that, so like what's some of the, the research that you've um, started exploring? Like, you know, is it, it what, what I, I don't know, like intervention. So what, that, mm -hmm. what does that look like now? Yeah, so um, so where I'm at right now, and, and partly because of the pandemic, doing intervention research has been eh, a little bit more difficult. Um, and and like I said, much of the um, research in IO psych is uh, more theory driven and uh, correlational in nature. And so we've been um, just kind of trying to tease apart what are some of the variables um, that are going to be most important to look at when we move into intervention focused um, research. And so one of the first studies that I did um, focused on practitioners in the field of behavior analysis um, is, is the one that's out there um, on self-care and um, job crafting practices and um, how that relates to burnout um, work engagement. Um, and that was uh, published. It was an online first publication in 2021. Um, I think it finally is in its like, you know, now everything comes out earlier than it does in the paper form, which is great, but also makes it weird when you say, oh, well, it came out in 2021, but technically the publication date is 2022. Um, and then there's always that like long gap of when did you actually collect the data? So what's interesting about that is that the data comes out um, online and people see the article in 2021. And I have to remind people every time we collected that data pre-pandemic. So this is a learning, like this was a learning opportunity for myself. Always put in your method when you collected the data, because when historical things like a pandemic happen, that's part of the context, right? Because people saw these high rates of burnout, you know, 72% having moderate to high levels of burnout, and they were like astounded. And I was like, that was before the pandemic. Um, and so uh, so we, we were really interested in, in seeing how um, professional self-care specifically um, how those types of um, practices would influence burnout, um, as well as job crafting. And um, in professional self-care, um, 
contains different dimensions, things like professional support, professional development, um, cognitive strategies, like things that you're going to do throughout the day. You know, think of some of the act stuff that people will do to really know, you know, can you tact your triggers for things that are going to be emotionally um, draining or drain you of energy or become frustrating? Um, and, you know, if you can identify those potential triggers, are there ways that when you experience those triggers, can you, you know, you know, respond effectively in that moment, right? So I'm going to get really acty, acty here uh, so, so that you don't burn yourself out, that you don't have a negative interaction with the client that you're working with, those sorts of things. Um, and then there's a life balance and there's a daily balance component to it. And the life balance is more related to um, kind of the traditional work-life balance concept um, that people are familiar with, um, where in daily balances, what are the things that you're doing throughout the workday to kind of ensure that you're, you know, not um, becoming overwhelmed. So are you taking little breaks in between? Are you, you know, to practice mindfulness, even just to eat, right? Like, are you making time to eat without distractions, you know, instead of while you're on your drive to your next client? Um, so, and that is um, separate from personal self-care where you're looking at things like your, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, those types of things. That's important. But what was really interesting when I looked at the literature is that they do make a distinction between personal and professional uh, forms of self-care and that the two really are symbiotic and, and they work together. So like you're not going to have high levels of professional self-care if you're not taking care of yourself personally. And if you're taking care of yourself professionally, you're going to be able to take care of yourself better on a personal level, too. Um, and if you look at any of the work family conflict literature, um, you'll see that a lot of times they study work to family and family to work conflict um, because they acknowledge that work affects family life and, and family being anything outside of work. It's a very general, broad term now, not, you know, even single people have their family life. Um, and, and that also, you know, if things are going haywire, chaotic in your personal life, that's gonna influence um, your ability to work effectively. So, um, so that was a self-care component. And then we've looked at job crafting, which I find fascinating um, and, and learned about because I was at an occupational health psychology um, summer institute is what they called it, it was just a fancy way of saying like a, a three-day seminar focused on all things occupational health psychology. It was great. Um, but two researchers from the Netherlands were there and they were talking about job crafting. And as they were talking about it, I was like, this aligns perfectly with what we talk about when we're talking about individual focused interventions or interventions at the individual at the individual level, performer level in the workplace. So it's kind of this bottoms up approach to making little tweaks in the way that you do your work um, in order to support your well-being. Um, so it's really employee driven. Uh, and there are different dimensions to that, such as increasing your social resources, which is like speaking feedback, supervisor support, coworker support increasing structural resources, which might be, um, you know, equipment and materials and things that you need to do your job, maybe even professional development types things to, you know, provide additional skills to do your job, um, increasing challenging work demands, which is really interesting, right? Because you're like, oh, but this isn't a good way. So say you have a strength, you're really good at, maybe you have a really creative um, niche and you like doing social media stuff. And, you know, so maybe you get involved with like leading a social media campaign for your organization, um, or you're just good at leading project teams and there's a project that comes up and you go into that leadership um, position um, as a project manager for, for that specific thing. 
Um, so increasing challenging demands in a way that allows you to use your strengths is kind of what that's focused on. And then decreasing hindering job demands, which are kind of those daily hassle type things that are just frustrating and annoying. And we, you know, all have those. Um, so are there ways that you can, you know, reduce those? Um, and, and job crafting, um, I've really um, kind of latched onto, and I've had a few students, graduate students do research on it. I have one currently who's going to do another study on it um, because I, I like the, um, the fact that it's individually driven, but also that from a systems perspective, um, job crafting, your ability to job craft is going to be dependent on the amount of support that you get at the organizational level to have that flexibility and job control to engage in it. So we're gonna look at some, some more research there. Um, but what we found out within the behavior analytic um, community is that um, you know practitioners are using both to some extent um, and that there's a, a high correlation between some of the job crafting strategies and the self-care practices that it looks like um, job crafting could be a form or, you know, in some ways, um, you know, is kind of assumed under uh, professional self-care. Because if you think about if I'm increasing my, um, you know, social resources, well, that would relate to the professional support dimension of professional self-care. Um, so there is some overlap there, which was interesting to see when we looked at that data. Um, I have another student, we have a paper, um, she submitted her thesis. I do try to get my students to submit their theses when, when the results are meaningful. Um, and we're looking at um, different types of professional support. Um, and this is what I think is, is fascinating in the field of behavior analysis. So outside of the field of behavior analysis, your supervisor is just the person that you report to. Within the field of behavior analysis, supervisor means something very different in some cases, right? Like you might have a supervisor because you are accruing hours to sit for your exam versus you could just be a BCBA who has a clinical director and that's considered like your supervisor. Um, and so, um, you know, what we what we realized is that we need to figure out the right language to use to make sure that we are um, getting data within the right context. So, you know, when people were answering that question about supervisor, we couldn't tease apart if they were talking about their supervisor as like the person who's overseeing their hours versus the person who they just report to at work or evaluates their performance. So that was just an interesting thing that I learned as a researcher, not being in clinical practice and realizing that the, the label supervisor can mean different things. And this goes back to why it's important to explore other areas and other fields and what other literature is saying and you know going and even observing like it's mm -hmm. fascinating to read um you know okay so a direct care staff that's going to be working at a group home facility you know they do an eight hour shift nine hour shift is what it looks like hour for lunch mm -hmm. um and you go and you read what the job description is and you're like i've been there that's not at all what goes on. Yeah. Um, that's not at all what's required. Or if it is, it's it's worded in ways that like you're not setting them up for success. Like you're not telling mm -hmm. them exactly what's going to be happening because working with somebody who is medically fragile or has a disability and cognitive impairment may or may not have, you know, some challenging behavior mm -hmm. to go with it. Yeah, it's 
you, you see the side of the of the job going like or the employee going well we don't want to scare them off like we need people to come work but at the same time we end up seeing people that get burned out so quickly mm-hmm. because i didn't know what i was getting into and it's tough yeah in io we have a, a concept called realistic job previews i don't know if it ever comes up in in the behavior analytic world um, but yeah, they talk about, um, realistic job previews as, as being a way to really show somebody what that job, both the positives and the negatives. Right. And, um, and it's not something, something, the negatives aren't commonly showcased when you're doing interviews, right? Like you're really trying to track this person in. And so that's where as an interviewee, and maybe we need to do some more training on, you know, what are the right questions to ask without it, without asking them in a way that. The employer would be concerned, but really to get at, you know, um, what is the culture like within this organization? How well supported are you going to be? How frequently are you going to get feedback? Those types of things. Um, and I've seen some threads on LinkedIn kind of related to this, um, not necessarily in the field of behavior analysis, but also just in other, you know, just general, you know, interviewing for jobs. And I want to, you know, find out about XYZ about an employer. What's the best way to ask this question? And so, um, you know, there are creative ways, um, you know, to, to, um, to ask somebody about, you know, like, well, you know, why have you stayed, you know, like I could imagine somebody saying, Julie, why have you stayed at UMD for 15 years? Like, there's gotta be a reason that you've stayed there beyond just the fact that you have tenure. Right. Um, and there is, and, and I'm happy to share those things. I'm also happy to share some of the things that I'm not so happy about. Um, because I think that, um, you know, especially, yeah, and I'll say this for higher ed, but I'm, I'm, I know that this is the case even in human services. The worst thing to happen is to bring somebody in who then realizes that what they thought the job was going to be isn't what it is, and then they leave. So now you've spent all this money, um, all this money on, you know, the search process itself. Um, which, if if you've ever been involved in an academic search, is a nightmare. It takes forever. Um, you know, so all the time and energy of the people who are, are running the search, um, the money that goes into marketing for that search, um, then, you know, think about it from the, the person who's interviewing the time that they've spent putting together all of their materials. If they have to travel to wherever you're going to be in academia, these are like two day interviews. Um, so they're really extensive. Um, and, and then they get here. And they realize that the things that they were told during an interview, you know, aren't there. So they leave. And now you've wasted all this time and, and money. You spent money on training them too, you know, depending on how long they've stayed or mentoring them. Um, and so there are a lot of direct and indirect costs that go into um, employee turnover. And so it would be to our advantage to retain really highly qualified employees and also not bring somebody in just to fill a position um, you know, who, you know, isn't going to be a good fit. Um, and, you know, there are contingencies on both sides. Like we know that sometimes there are people who just take a job because they just need something right then and there. They don't have the intentions to stay, but they're not going to tell you that either. So, so at least that happens <laughs> in some, in some places I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, I know like as a kid doing like summer jobs and everything like, yeah, no, I never Mm -hmm. had the intention to stick with these jobs more than a couple months. Like I just needed spending money to get me through until the next school year. So 
Yeah, and they would try, they would always ask so nicely in August, are you sure you don't want to stay? Mm, nope, sure don't. No, nope. this is nope. not what I want to do. <laughs> um, and yeah, I having, it, it, they are, they're uncomfortable discussions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is practice and experience. And, you know, the older you get, the more experience, the wiser and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, this goes, I think, back to having discussions and disseminating that kind of information, making sure that people get access to it. Because if we can keep people from having to learn really hard mistakes, um, that's mm-hmm. that's nice. I feel like that's a good thing to do. Like, you shouldn't have okay. to suffer just because the rest of us suffered in some way, shape, or form. Like, that's, right. that's detrimental. That's not progress. That's not moving mm-hmm. our science forward um, in the ways that we want to you know, we're just, we're doing the exact opposite of what we try to tout and tell other people to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's take it one step further then. And, you know, a a person has become burnout or they're starting to feel that way. You know, have you guys looked at, I know you said actually doing intervention things have been a little Mm -hmm. difficult with pandemic, but have you guys started exploring like what that process would look like? um, And is it mostly on like the system side of things? Like we have to just change you know, not just change, but, you know, change job descriptions, look at feedback systems, or are you looking also at like implementing something with the person's behavior and their own responses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be a two-way approach, right? So I'd love to do some stuff at the systems level because clearly there are, there are systems level issues that are going to contribute to burnout, right? Um, you know, I think when you're um, like in the very immediate, it probably is good to give people skills and tools that they can use um, in in the very immediate future to try to lessen um, some of of, of that burnout um, and try to recover from that burnout. Um, But if um, it's in in the book that I use for my systems class, you know, like if you pit a good performer against a bad system, the bad system is always going to win, right? Dale Brothauer. Um, and and Romer and Brace um, is the the book that I use, and I thought that I had it on my desk, but I don't. Um, Improving the White Space um, book is what it's called. Such a great book, um, and uh, you know that that statement has stuck with me because it really is true. Like, um, and 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 we have OBM research that you know if you have high performers and you put them in. Um, a, in a group with low performing individuals, like their performance will lower over time too, because it has, you know, that, that group now becomes its own system um, and the, in the different contingencies that are in place. And so there definitely needs to be work at the systems level. Like that, that's the only way that we're going to have major impact. Um, You know, and we can't, if you have somebody who's burnt out, they've already depleted their resources. So asking them to give anything more to try to recover from this um, is going to be is going to be difficult. So that's where you can do some of those proactive things, right? So the professional self-care and the job crafting strategies are proactive approaches to, you know, trying to prevent burnout from happening. Um, and we showed in our research that they are predictors for lower levels of burnout. Um, you know, but when we think about the person who is burnt out, we got to first identify what are those unhelpful behavior patterns that they're engaging in. And so, you know, think about, you know, kind of doing our ABCs, our behavioral framework um, for, for burnout. What does that look like? And I um, attended, a, a, it was a four session uh, workshop with Debbie Sorensen on ACT for Burnout. 
Um, and there is, a, you know, there's literature on um, using um, ACT interventions uh, for burnout. There's some, uh, a few studies out now. And so I think that's a promising intervention to look at. Um, I'm most interested in how can we um, do brief interventions? And there's more research coming out on brief act interventions, just thinking about time, money, resources that people have um, and capacity. Um, but if we look at burnout in a behavioral framework, you know, first we got to identify what are the unhelpful behaviors that I'm engaging in, right? So, um, you know, for me, sometimes it's staying up way too late to work on things because um, I start working and I just want to finish it so that I can go to bed and not think about it when I'm trying to go to bed, right? Um, and, and maybe I'm staying up and, and working on tasks when I really should be spending time with my dog or with my husband, you know, you know, that probably should be a priority too. Um, or sleeping, um, you know, skipping meals could be another un, unhelpful um, behavioral pattern, skipping exercise, mindless snacking, you know, all those different types of things, right? So we figure out, okay, what are those? And I want to be very careful to point out that an unhelpful behavior pattern is only problematic if that behavioral pattern becomes the go-to behavioral pattern, right? Like staying up a little bit late to work on a task one time, probably not a big deal. Skipping an, ex skipping an exercise workout that you had planned one time in a week, probably not a big deal. But if it becomes like I skip every workout and now I haven't worked out in six months, that's problem, right? Um, if you value exercise and exercise is something that's important to you. Um, you know, scrolling on social media is another one too. There are times when I do it, um, but it would be problematic if it became the, the thing that I do every time that um, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed or frustrated with work. Um, you know, and then we kind of go back and say, okay, well, what are some of the things that prompt this behavior, right? What are antecedents? Um, and looking at both. Um, and so for, for those that um, are familiar with me, um, even though I have a, a very traditional behavior analytic training from Western Michigan University, I also have studied um, acceptance and commitment training um, for the last several years. Um, and so I, I'm looking at both external and internal antecedents um, and experiences that can, you know, contribute to these unhelpful behaviors. So things like disrupted sleep, um, feelings of fatigue, feeling stressed, feeling anxious. Um, maybe you're given extra tasks at work. Maybe you had a really awful client session. Maybe your supervisor hasn't given you feedback or you haven't seen them even for you know a couple of weeks. Um, maybe you're having that thought that you got yourself into, like you took on this new project because you were really excited about it and then you realized that it's bigger than what you were thinking it was going to be. Um, or maybe you're new on the job and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm doing. So, you know, all these thoughts that we're having, all these feelings that we're having, um, and then looking at those antecedents and saying, which ones are in our control and outside of our control, right? So the thoughts, the feelings, and the things like being, you know, directed to do extra tasks at work, those are outside of your control, but disrupted sleep, things like, um, you know, caring for a family member who might be sick or a sick child. Um, those are things that are more within your direct control in terms of how you're going to respond to those because you can't control if, you know, a feeling of, of stress or anxiety shows up. Okay. So those are antecedents, our unhelpful behaviors. And then when we're looking at consequences, and here's where we kind of figure out what, what burnout is, right? Because burnout is results as, um, occurs as a result of long-term exposure to some of these stressors, 
for just to make it in very simple terms. So a short-term consequence of things like staying up late to work on tasks or skipping a meal or skipping exercise, um, you might feel relief because you finished that task that you were working on. Um, you might, um, maybe, you know, if you're scrolling on social media, maybe you feel a little bit of, um, of, you know, humor, you know, stress relief because now you just watch funny dog videos or something like that. So things like, I love to watch those reels. It was low effort distractions, right? Um, you know, more in the medium term, maybe you start to feel a little bit guilty and a little bit tired, a little bit more um, exhausted. And then in the long term, you start to have these feelings of detachment from work. And, um, you know, maybe also just an awareness of a misalignment between your actions and your values. And so you can see like in this, you know, this is again, kind of looking at it and saying, okay, well, we engage in these unhelpful behaviors in the moment, because in the short term, they result in some positive consequences. But then a little bit longer down the road, and even longer down the road, that's where we start to see that negative impact. Um, and that's when we start to see, you know, what we call burnout. Um, okay, so that's, that's the behavioral kind of uh, framework for for how to um, explain what's happening and um, and in the workshop that Debbie did, I thought she did a really nice job. Um, you know, really illustrating that when we're looking at you know in between the external internal experiences that are antecedents and the behavior, those are opportunities for self awareness, right? Increased opportunities there, um, and then in between the unhelpful behavior patterns and the consequences, therein lies an opportunity for new behavior patterns. And I like to say we need to disrupt the current behavioral pattern to make space for new behavioral patterns. Um, and then we need to, you know, make sure that we program in some positive consequences for those new behavioral patterns um, to help them get going until they contact enough of the natural reinforcement to maintain them over time, right? Um, build that momentum and trap them in the natural contingencies. Um, what did I leave out, Kelly? Or what's next? Oh, that was beautiful. I just started getting focused in on that. It's like, yeah, it, for my, it's, um, as everyone knows, I love gold diamond. Um, and that's, I, I, the constructional approach is a very similar look to it of, you know, we want to meet the learner where they're at. And so when they're coming to you, it's usually because there is a problem already. And so in this case, it's burned out. Okay, well, what does that mean? And you start to tease apart, okay, what were the things that led down this path? And so now, you know, not only is like, okay, we're here, so we're going to look at proactive measures, but you're also teaching them that even if you're using those proactive measures, still being alert. And you said, like I said, self-aware to, oh, wait, I'm starting to feel a shift in my behaviors, or I'm starting to see that pattern emerge again. And now I have a choice to, okay, I can look at it this way, or I can continue to go down this road to see if, you know, maybe it'll get better. Yep. And you do that so many times and you start analyzing your own contingencies and your own behavior and you realize like, no, I know, I know myself, you know, that's kind of where mm -hmm. that comes in. Um, and it's, it's very behavior analytic based. Like you've taken data on yourself, you've looked at the contingencies and what those contingencies or expectations, you know, made you feel, you know, the emotional response that came out of it, you know, oh, I was, you know, I really enjoyed my job. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got a promotion, but then I also got 40,000 more responsibilities to go along with it. And I'd rather just have my old job back because now I've got all these responsibilities and no one asked me about that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, 
teaching somebody, including yourself, to be able to tact those relationships is so important because then you continue to be your own behavior analyst. But if you're teaching somebody else, your supervisee, your students, caregivers you're working with, they start to catch themselves going, oh, wait, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. You know, what went well last time? What didn't go right this time? Um, And yeah, so yeah, yeah, science is really cool. We can do cool things. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think the self-awareness component is is a major part of it, right? Um, because it's too easy to get wrapped up in the work that we're doing. And we're we're so used to analyzing the contingencies of someone else's behavior that we need to sit back and say, okay, well, what's contributing to my own behavior? And I, I find myself in this, this loop and, um, you know, it becomes that automatic behavior. It's so habitual, right? Um, and in, and that's why I say we got to disrupt these unhelpful behaviors. But the only way that we're going to be able to do that is to become aware that they're happening in the first place and aware of what those antecedents are. And so one of the things that I do in my undergraduate classes, um, they actually use the, the ACT matrix and they start taking some data on like what's happening before they engage in this unhelpful behavior that they want to change and, um, and, and help them make the distinction between, you know, the things that are kind of outside and inside their control. Um, and, and what I find is that a lot of um, people, they, well, a lot of our undergrad students, because they're in a traditional um, psych program, they're more used to the internal, like cognitive um, behavior, you know, covert behaviors that um, we have a tendency not to focus on um, in, in the field of behavior analysis. And um, so then they start seeing how, oh, well, my friend asked me to go out tonight. And so that's why I went out to the bar instead of doing my homework. And, you know, they start to see how these interactions that they're having with other people and other things in their environment are um, influencing their own behavior. Um, And even in that class, you know, the students will say, oh, I thought this, I thought our behavior change project was going to be us changing someone else's behavior. And I said, no, you need to know how to analyze your own behavior and change your own behavior first, because there are a lot of complexities to human behavior. Um, that's sometimes why I wish that I worked with animals. Although sometimes I wish my dog could talk to me to tell me certain things too. But you know, the it, it's different. You know, because of our rule governed behavior and and our verbal behavior, we do get stuck, and that makes things a lot more complex when we're talking about behavior change. Um, and I know that this is getting very tangential from burnout, but I think it does. It, it all comes back and connects, right? Because um, a lot of times you don't realize that you're burnt out until it's too late. Like you're you're really in the deeps of it before you realize that this is not okay. And um, and and burnout can have significant consequences. I know a number of people who develop health conditions because you know they just kept pushing and pressing forward. Um, and not stopping and listening to their body and and looking at their own behavior to see, you know, the consequences that that's having on their health. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if if we're not if we're not healthy, we're not going to be productive employers, employees, um, and we're not going to provide, you know, the high quality service to our clients, to our customers, to our students, so on and so forth. Um, and so that's why I think that, um, you know, the topic of burnout in particular um, is really something that we need to be concerned about in the field of behavior analysis um, and, and self-care, professional self-care um, and things like burnout need to be part of graduate training curriculum. 
Um, it's part of the curriculum in other um, professions in social work. It's in their it's in their codes of ethics. Um, in counseling psych, it's also in their code. You know, so if if these are things that are important in other helping professions, then you know we're a young field, but we do have other fields out there that we can use as models, and we can learn from some of the things. I mean, I'm sure that the reason that self care is in their ethics code in social work and in counseling psych is because they also went through, you know, what our field is going through right now. Um, and so, you know, if this is something that we can, you know, kind of tackle in the moment right now, we might, um, you know, be able to get a little bit more ahead of the game than where we might be headed right now if, if we don't start, um, you know, figuring out how to help our employees take care of themselves, but then also as an organization, you know, take care of each other and, and the entire system. That's why I always, and you know, one of the reasons we encourage have a verbal community, even if that means just like reaching out to one of us, like reach out to me, reach out to Julie, reach out to any one of our guests, because if you, you know, if, if those resources are getting depleted and you're not getting anything put back in, yeah, you're just, you're going to, you're going to burn and it's not going to be pretty because like you pointed out those kind of longer term consequences like it's not just the interaction here of like oh man i didn't get this paperwork in it's also how did you it's the behavioral butterfly you know how did you interact with your client how did you interact with the caregiver um the organization you know did you tick off the guy on the bus stop and you know things like that and and until we're able to really start to pull that apart and see those as like, okay, the behavior, it's a long stream. Yes, we isolate mm -hmm. it, but it's like, it all flows together and like, oh snap, this thing, I could have stopped it at this point, like early mm -hmm. on in the day. But, you know, those competing contingencies, again, those interlocking things of like, but if I don't get this done and this happens and this happens and that, and yeah, you just, you spiral into it. Yep. So, exactly. oh man, this has been an amazing talk and I, I am <laughs> aware of time and everything. Um, so this has been fabulous. I would love if you um, could give like maybe last few words of wisdom. And if you mm. would like to, um, where people can find you like on the interwebs or social media, things like that. So if people do want to reach out um, directly to you, they can find you. And while you are doing that, I'm going to put CE things in the chat. Well, let's see, words of wisdom. Um... As it, as it relates to our talk about burnout, I think, um, you know, the, you know, what you said, Kelly, about, um, about reaching out to someone, you know, to anyone, I think um, there's always that fear of, is it okay to talk to my, you know, my supervisor, my coworker about some of the stuff that's happening in my personal life? Like, are they going to understand? Um, and if there's one thing that I've learned through my own personal journey it's that as I've become more authentic as, um, as a teacher, as a coworker, um, as a professor, as a consultant, um, as I've, um, you know, figured out what my values are and, um, and let myself be who I am in any of the roles that I have, um, it has um, allowed me to develop relationships where I can, I can let you know, my colleagues know, or my students know when I'm having a rough time and it, and there isn't that fear of, they're going to see that as being weak, um, or, you know, more often than not. And, and I know that this doesn't always happen. Um, but more often than not, there's the support, there's the, what can I do, you know, and, and you gave that example earlier, Kelly, 
Um, and, and, and that has been my experience. Um, you know, I've, I've lost loved ones while I'm teaching and I've had students send flowers, um, you know, to, to my family, um, for it. And, um, you know, and I think I, I, and I think what I've found in my, um, in my role as a profession professor is that by sharing my authentic self with my students, my students are more likely to let me know when something's up in their life. Um, and so I don't know how to do this in the work world yet, but one of the things that I do in, um, in the ac academic world is on my, um, course sites and in my syllabus, I have a, when life happens policy and, um, you know, and I share a story about my, my own life, you know, cause I want to make sure that my students, you know, can relate to it. You know, the loss of a grandparent is something that a lot of my students can also relate to. Um, and it's like, Hey, like, I know that life happens. Like sometimes, you know, these, these things, these things happen and they affect our ability to be, you know, productive, um, members of the academic community. And, um, and the only way that I'm going to know that you're struggling with that is if you let me know. So I, I put that in there as an invitation. And so, you know, um, if you're listening to this and you are an employer, you are a supervisor, you are a faculty member, um, I encourage you to kind of create some sort of when life happens policy for those that you're working with. Um, give them that invitation because the, the fear of how are they going to respond um, or how you're going to respond um, might be what's holding somebody back. And then because you don't know, you can't provide resources or support for that person. And so they could inevitably burn themselves out because they don't realize that they can ask for help or ask for support. So, um, so it kind of goes on both ends, right? So depending on who you are and what your role is, either make sure that those that you're working with know that they can come to you. Um, and if you're the person who needs help, um, ask, because if you don't ask, then you're never going to know if you have access to, to help and resources that might be available. Um, and, uh, in, in my case, um, I would not still be, um, a, a faculty member today if I didn't ask, uh, for help. Um, you know, in 2018, I got diagnosed with a chronic health condition that, you know, has changed the way that, um, that I do my work right now. Um, and if I hadn't reached out for help about that, you know, I, I probably would have had to find something else to do at this point. Um, so, you know, the, the interaction between health and work, I think, is something that's um, of utmost importance right now. All righty, here's the second of your two keywords. Second word is burnout. B-U-R-N-O-U-T. Burnout occurs for a variety of reasons. Burnout. Um, okay. So if you want to reach out to me, which please do, um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Julie Sloviak. That's, um, and it's D-R-J-U-L-I-E-S-L-O-W-I-A-K. Uh, and you can email me, um, if you want to email me about anything academic research related, you can email me at jsloviak at d.umn.edu. Um, if you're interested in coaching, consulting related to self-care burnout, um, anything OBM related, um, you can email me at injewelcoaching.com. And I think Kelly will probably have that in some episode notes or something. 
Um, so thank you so much again, Kelly, for the invitation. And, uh, and I hope we have another conversation somewhere down the road. Oh, heck yes. Um, <laughs> I'm always down to talk nerdy. That's what I tell people. Like this is, it brings me joy. Because um, again, <laughs> looking at, you know, what, how to not get burned out after 14 years of being in direct care, I'm kind of burned yeah. out. Um, and this is one of those like, oh yeah, this was a passion that I had for a while. This is fun. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I'm selfish and I enjoy learning from people. So people are fascinating, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been rad and uh, be kind humans, uh, be nice to each other, you know, just ask questions, be listening, be empathetic and do those things. And I love you all. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website atypicalba.com for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. Hey, what's up? Thanks for sticking around. As promised, here's a preview clip from episode 47, where we talk knee rehabilitation, the behavioral unit, collaboration with Dr. Brennan Armshaw. Enjoy, and we'll see you soon. It's kind of the, the beauty of our science, right, is we can, we can begin to teach and establish these sorts of responses um, if we can reliably measure the behavior and program sophisticated contingencies um, dependent on that response.